Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. Chapter 36, The Gunfighters of Code 14, High Plains Federal Litigators. Welcome to our podcast, The Gunfighters of Code 14, High Plains Federal Litigators. I am Lieutenant Alyssa Williams, Code 14 Litigation Attorney, and I am joined today by Mr. Grant Latin, Code 14's Division Director Extraordinaire. Mr. Latin, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Wonderful. Now, I know you have a long history with Code 14, and that goes all the way back to your time with the Marine Corps. Is that correct? That's true. Uh, in the early 90s, uh, I was on active duty here in Code 14 um, as a Marine Judge Advocate. And then uh, after I retired, I went into private law practice for 13 years. Then uh, I was hired as the first civilian deputy director uh, here at Code uh, 14. And then I was ultimately uh, uh, elevated to the director's office and have been uh, serving here since 2008. Now, rumor has it that half the reason they hired you is because you were such a successful civilian litigator, they wanted you to stop suing the Navy and start defending it. Is that true? Well, I don't know how true that is. I I was told that uh, story by one of the people who were on the interview interview committee when I was being interviewed, but I'm not sure how true it is. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get down to what everyone's here for. What is Code 14? What's its name and what does it do? Well, we are the General Litigation Division, and uh, what we do is uh, civil litigation, mostly in federal uh, courts. Uh, We defend military personnel decisions and policies. We do constitutional torts. We do military disability cases. Uh, We do habeas petitions where people usually who are in prison are trying to get out of prison. Uh, We do Freedom of Information Act litigation. We do uh, TUI litigation and TUI requests. Uh, We do uh, extradition uh, uh, warrants, uh, uh, arrest warrants, where people, uh, some jurisdiction out there, some state, it has a warrant for the arrest of either uh, a Marine or a sailor. And uh, we provide advice to commands about uh, how to go through that uh, series of actions. Okay, so that's an interesting assortment of specialties. Let's unpack that a bit. Code 14 is general litigation because it handles many of the general suits not covered by other codes, correct? That's correct. Um... Now, I thought Code 15 handled all tort litigation, but you said Code 14 does constitutional torts. What are those, and how are they Code 14s? Well, a constitutional tort is a unique tort that was created not by the common law, which is where common law torts come from, but by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Bivens case. They're often called Bivens torts. And the Supreme Court in that decision held that uh, civilian employees can be sued for violations of the Constitution. That's why they're called constitutional torts. So that's unique from the Code 15 Federal Tort Claim torts, correct? Yeah, the assaults, uh, defamation, um, Code 15 handles tort claims and tort litigation. All right, and of course, Admiralty is going to handle any type of vessel claims. Do we ever have the opportunity as Code 14 to work with our OJAG counterparts? 
Occasionally we do because a complaint will get filed. I'll just give you a more typical one where they allege a constitutional tort against some some um, de Department of Navy employee. And in addition, they bring common law torts. So we work closely with Code 15 in that case to coordinate the best response to all of those claims. And Code 14 also works very closely with the DOD, Department of Defense, overall for claims that may affect all the services. Is that accurate? Correct. Uh, it's not unusual for the Department of Defense or the Secretary of Defense to be the named plaintiff. And when that occurs, uh, they will often um, assign one of the services, including us here in the Department of the Navy, to uh, work the case or they will take the lead at DOD litigation and we will work with them to provide whatever information or witnesses they may need from the Department of the Navy. So there's a lot of opportunity for Code 14 members to work with the DOD or with other OJAG codes overall. Are there any other agencies that Code 14 members would regularly interact with? Well, the most common one is the Department of Justice because they are the people who actually formally and technically representing the United States in all of these cases in a federal court. They have that statutory authority. So they are, they are the attorney of record in the case. We are the agency counsel, but they need us very much and they appreciate us very much because it's oftentimes they've never seen a military personnel case or a disability case or a PTSD case. And we have the expertise to provide that information. All right. I'm not going to lie, sir. That sounds a bit like we do all the work and they get all the glory. What would you say to a gunfighter who's just itching to make an oral argument? Will they get the chance to do that? They do. Uh, we've we've done it a number of times. Um, oftentimes, it's just because you're the second seater sitting next to the uh, DOJ attorney, and they'll ask a question that the DOJ attorney doesn't have, and and they'll turn to you. Everybody in the in the courtroom will turn to you because you're wearing the uniform, and they'll uh, expect you to have an answer. Uh, there are other more formal times when we have been designated to be a special assistant U.S. attorney to represent. Uh, the government, both trial level and appellate level, we have done that. All right, so that covers the end of the process. But what about the middle? What do Code 14 gunfighters get to do regarding discovery? Do they participate in, say, depositions? Or how about settlement conferences? Oh, absolutely. In, in depositions, for example, um, uh, the assistant U.S. attorney may turn one of the witnesses over to you to do the questioning or they'll share the, the questions and, or the objections. And, and you're actually doing those uh, questions and, and, and making the objections yourself. Um, when it comes to a settlement conference in front of a judge, uh, we're in there uh, talking just as much as the assistant U.S. attorney is uh, because the judge wants to hear What's the Navy's position uh, in, in this? And, and there's going to be a lot of give and take and uh, a lot of discussion. And they're going to be turning to the Navy Council to uh, hear what the Navy's position is with regard to that settlement. So that's, those are two good examples of places where uh, we're standing on our feet and uh, representing the Navy in that forum. 
So that covers a lot of the subject matter that a gunfighter could expect to see, as well as some of the roles they'll be performing for federal litigation purposes. But can you take us through the life of a case? I understand that a suit will be filed normally in a district court or the court of federal claims. That suit will then be served on the appropriate agency representatives, and the AUSA or DOJ will issue a call letter asking us to make a litigation risk assessment on the case. But what happens next? Well, once we know about the complaint, we read it closely, see what it's about. Uh, We realize, having read it, the kinds of information that we need to start looking for. So we go out and get the administrative records to find the witnesses, the people who were involved in whatever the decision is that was made. Um, We're talking to the DOJ attorney to figure out what the best litigation strategy is. Um, They're they're all ears. Oftentimes, they have never done one of these cases, so they're listening very carefully to what what we're suggesting. Uh, Once uh, the strategy is determined and it's likely going to be some kind of a motion, uh, we'll either be writing it. Some uh, some DOJ attorneys prefer to take the first crack at it. Uh, the majority of them would like us to write a brief and send it to them. Uh, it's not unusual for that brief to be filed with very few changes. After the briefs have been filed, there may be a hearing. If it's in the Court of Federal Claims, which is about half of our cases, those judges aren't as busy, and so they're much more likely to have a hearing. And uh, uh, we're, we're sitting right next to the DOJ attorney in that hearing. I can remember during the days when I was a, a Code 14 attorney, there were at least two cases when I showed up at, and the minute uh, the judge saw me in my uniform, the judge only directed the rest of the questions to me, never said anything to the AUS attorney in both of those cases. And I think in both of those cases, the AUS attorney was just glad that that's the way it worked out. They, <laughs> they were just happy to s- sit back and listen. So particularly with pretrial litigation matters like depositions, conferences, and motions, there are plenty of opportunities for gunfighters to get in front of the judge or to deal directly with opposing counsel. However, as you noted, most of the cases are resolved by motion practice. Is it fair then to say that this is a particularly attractive billet for lawyers who are drawn to legal writing, but still has some opportunities for attorneys interested in oral advocacy? I think so. Uh, We've got a little bit of all of that. And uh, if you're a person that uh, prefers uh, more of being on your feet and and in front of a judge, uh, you can look for those types of cases and opportunities. Uh, Or if you're a person that prefers to just write motions, you can look for those opportunities. And uh, I think Code 14 has a little bit of both to offer. Out of curiosity, have any of the Code 14 cases gone to the Supreme Court? We've gone up to the Supreme Court uh, many times, uh, probably uh, 10 times in the last in the years I've been here. Uh, now, none of those cases have the Supreme Court ever granted cert uh, where, where it's fully briefed. Uh, our briefs have been limited to opposing the uh, writ of certiorari, and uh, th- those have been very successful because all of them have been denied. Successful indeed then, but alas, that does mean no hearing in front of the justices. 
But sir, you have been here as director of Code 14 for 12 years, and you were here as a gunfighter while on active duty. Although it might not have made it up to the Supreme Court, what are some of the most memorable or highest impact cases that you know of that Code 14 has handled? Just give us some wave tops. Oh, the Strand case uh, where we uh, defended the uh, secretary's decision where they overturned the BCNR, uh, that case will be cited for years to come, uh, giving the secretary a complete authority about uh, the correction of records. And the chaplaincy cases we've been litigating for over 20 years, uh, they're still ongoing. Uh, we're in the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and those cases are are already being cited. And of course, we also have the PTSD cases that we mentioned earlier that we're working on with the DOD. We also have some class actions we've worked on regarding separations and even some ethics cases involving JAGs. But the burning question for everyone, sir, are any of these cases the reason why Code 14 members are known as the gunfighters? Well, you know, I I have to be very honest about uh, the origin of the word gunfighters that uh, that has been here since I was here in the early '90s. I have no idea. It was that's what we were called back in the early '90s. Nobody ever was able to tell any of us where the word gunfighters or the the tagline gunfighters came from uh, to describe the people in Code 14. But it was definitely in great use then, and it's continued to be in use since then. And some of the gunfighter alumni have become very prestigious flag officers, correct? Yes, I can think of four. Uh, two of them became the JAG, uh, our current JAG, Vice Admiral Hannock, and uh, previous JAG, uh, Vice Admiral Nan Dorenzi. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, uh, rear admirals uh, who have passed through Code 14. Uh, one is uh, that comes to mind is Rear Admiral uh, Kirk Foster. So it sounds like there's a lot of great company for our gunfighters, both before, during, and after they've served in the office. But federal litigation isn't all the office specializes in. You've mentioned before FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, Although the office handles litigation, it also serves as the U.S. Navy's appellate authority for intra-agency decisions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the, the JAG has been delegated authority by the Secretary of the Navy to adjudicate FOIA appeals. These are the administrative appeals after the IDA has made a decision. And uh, those appeals either come to this office or to the General Counsel's office. If it goes to the General Counsel's office, they adjudicate those appeals. If it comes to the JAG side, we adjudicate them. I specifically am the person who makes the final decision. That decision is important because a person cannot go to federal court until they've gone through the uh, appeals process. If they choose to go to a federal court without seeking an administrative appeal, we can have the case dismissed because they failed to exhaust their administrative remedies. So it's a it's an important part. We do about two-thirds to three-quarters of the uh, FOIA appeals within the department. Which totaled about 340 appeals last year alone, the remainder handled by OGC. 
The life of a FOIA appeal begins with the receipt of a letter or a FOIA online appeal, where a requester can test the decision made by the Initial Denial Authority, or IDA, who responded to their initial FOIA request. That appeal is assigned to a counsel, who reaches out to the IDA to review what documents were identified, what was released, and what exemptions were claimed. The counsel will then write a proposed decision letter for the agency's response. And it's one of our attorneys who, who looks at that and, and drafts a, a, a proposed letter for me. I will review it. I may sign it just the way it is. I may cha- make some changes. Once that FOIA letter goes out, that's the final decision for the Department of the Navy. So to connect everything together, an initial FOIA request will be received and referred to the Cognizant Command, and often the General Court Martial Convening Authority, SJA, will help the commander decide what to release and what can be withheld. Code 13 is available to advise those SJAs on how to interpret and apply the respective FOIA exemptions. If an appeal is filed, Code 14 will then review the request in response and make the final decision that binds the agency. This is the decision that, you guessed it, will have to be defended in federal court and defended by those very Code 14 gunfighters in event the requester wants to challenge the decision. It's not unusual to receive a request or subsequent appeal for some hot topic or newsworthy item. Yes, if you want to read the current newspaper, very shortly afterwards, we will probably be seeing a FOIA request or a FOIA appeal on that issue. Uh, today is uh, uh, May 12th, and uh, the hot I- one of the hot issues in the media today is how did coronavirus affect the Navy and the relief of the commanding officer aboard the Roosevelt. We have a FOIA case that was filed two days ago on that very issue. They, the media requester uh, submitted uh, uh, an expedited FOIA request. They didn't get it in a timely fashion, uh, so they went straight to federal court. You'll notice they didn't go through an administrative appeal. And we will likely get that case dismissed because they failed to exhaust their administrative remedies. And there's several other reasons. We've already looked closely at that complaint. There are probably two other reasons why we may get that case dismissed. But that's an example of an issue that's on the front page of the Washington Post, and we are dealing with it within days. And now, please enjoy some raw audio of my very own FOIA joke. You have a FOIA joke? I do. Oh, I my. thought ahead. What is the Navy's favorite FOIA exemption? A favorite FOIA exemption? Boy, there's a lot of them. What, what is it? The Seven Seas. <laughs> the Seven seas. seas. I get it. Oh, man. Now, for all of you non-FOIA folks out there, 7C is the law enforcement exemption for FOIA records. But 7Cs, 7Cs, I did my best with a FOIA joke. Unfortunately, the rest of them were secured for the day, but please tune in to our FOIA podcast. When that comes out, I am still hoping to sneak a few more in there. But to get back to Code 14 and some of the components of its practice, we also handle what are called TUI requests or witness requests, where a third party is asking us for information in possession of the Navy, whether that's a witness request or record request or some other item. Code 14 manages these requests for the Navy as well, correct? 
Well, um, it often, it usually comes to us through the general counsel's office. The general counsel is the person who receives all service of process for the Department of the Navy. Once we get it, what documents are they looking for? What witnesses are they asking for? Oftentimes, all we have to do is refer it down to the General Court Martial Convening Authority, and they have authority under our regulation to resolve the matter. But uh, there are certain types of requests. For example, a request for an expert witness. They do not have authority to make an expert witness determination, and that will be finally decided by us here at Code 14 or over at the General Counsel's office. Uh, and remember, these are requests for cases where the U.S. is not a party to litigation. Because any of those requests would be discovery, and we've already discussed how Code 14's briefs usually get cases dismissed before they get that far. Now, civil litigation isn't the only litigation Code 14 handles. The office also responds to habeas petitions where convicted court-martial offenders file petitions in district court to challenge their convictions. The office also provides guidance on release of service members to civil authorities. When it's a habeas petition, we assign that to one of our attorneys and, and we do the research and look at the facts and we, and we get assistance from Code 20 or, or the people involved over at appellate government in defending the, the government's cases uh, over there. And we, we appreciate their advice and counsel a great deal. Uh, and uh, that is all taken into account and weaved into our brief opposing the habeas petition. Um, and we, we must be pretty good at it because I don't recall a successful habeas petition yet. And that's a BZ, of course, to the JAG Corps Defense and Government Council for both trial and appellate levels. Their thorough arguing of every case forms the basis of Code 14's motions. But as stated, Code 14 advises on turnovers to civil authorities as well. Sorry, defense. That's where we just encourage the SJA that is asking this question, because that's usually who it is, to read carefully Chapter 6 of the JAG Manual. Code 14 wrote Chapter 6 of the JAG Manual, and we help them understand what the, the obligations of the command is when those issues come up, when a local law enforcement or, or another state's law enforcement shows up with a warrant. Chapter 6 of the JAG Manual explains what they should do, but we realize that that's not easy to understand, and sometimes it was purposely written to be not precise because it often depends on what the law of that particular state is or the other state that's requesting it, so it can get kind of complicated, but uh, we're there to help the commands work through that. So if there's ever a question about turning a service member over to civil authorities, first read Chapter 6 of the Jagman, but know that Code 14 is standing by to assist with any questions you might have. As we come to the close of our podcast, some of you may be considering Code 14, and I'm sure others are thinking, yes, I am absolutely putting Code 14 as wishlist number one. But just in case you need some more convincing, Mr. Latin, what can you tell us about Code 14's daily life? Well, I think they will enjoy themselves. Uh, I've gotten that feedback from everybody who's come through Code 14, whether they 
got out from here, and this is a great place to get out if you're interested in doing civil litigation, um, or if they went to another job in the JAG Corps, they've always really appreciated what Code 14 taught them. We have a great work-life balance. Uh, you'll, you'll still have plenty of time for leave and liberty uh, here at Code 14. It's uh, rare when we have to do an all-nighter for on a TRO. It happens maybe once or twice a year, and it's only for one night, uh, maybe two nights. TRO meaning temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction against the Navy. The clock is very short, but that's very rare. The people who have come here and who have left here uh, have uh, said nothing but good things about their time here. And uh, I, I think that's true of anybody who's currently here. If you call, uh, if you want to just call and talk to either one of the Marines or the Navy officers and you're interested in coming here, call them and talk to them. Find out what they're doing, how they like it. Uh, is this something that, you know, is this something you'd really like to do? Not to mention the amazing coffee mess. The coffee mess is fantastic, and that's <laughs> particularly true since Alyssa arrived here because she has completely changed our coffee mess from a Class C to a, a triple Class A uh, uh, coffee mess. Not to toot my own horn, but it really is amazing. We even have an espresso machine now. So the office itself is located on board the Washington Navy Yard in the main OJAG building. It's right next to the front office where an assortment of assistant JAGs sit, and of course, the deputy JAG and the JAG when they aren't at the Pentagon. And as far as those working hours go... I, I just uh, expect people to come and give us a full day's worth of work. Uh, eight to nine hours. Uh, you can count your... Uh, uh, PT time in there um, and uh, just get the work done and you know I, I'm not a clock watcher the feedback that I've gotten from that style of leadership has been very positive uh, people uh, enjoy being here so what core skills should an inbound gunfighter possess or what skills can an exiting gunfighter expect to leave with well, if you like doing briefs, uh, legal writing, you will love being here. If, uh, even if you don't like doing briefs and you want to learn more about writing briefs, you will become a far better brief writer for having been here. People who come here have better litigation skills, better brief writing skills, uh, better skills at communications because you're on the phone every day with people, witnesses, command representatives, uh, other lawyers, and you're constantly uh, solving the problems that arise in each case. Uh, and people who leave here, they will take those skills with them and they will do very well. Our, our Code 14 alums are scattered all throughout government and private practices. So what jobs do some former gunfighters now hold in the civilian world? Well, uh, a number of them have gone to U.S. attorney's offices and are being assistant U.S. attorneys, and they're doing exactly the same kind of things that they did here. They, others have gone to Maine Justice. One of the 
most important people for the military, and I hear this from the Army and Air Force as well, is a Code 14 alum in Federal Programs Branch. If you're not familiar with Federal Programs Branch, they're one of the, it's one of the most sought after uh, parts of Maine Justice where, where, where you are representing the United States in, uh, to preserve federal programs in lots of federal agencies. And it's a very important place at the uh, Attorney General's office. We have uh, people who've gone into private practice. We've got people who've gone uh, into other federal agencies. Uh, one went to Chicago and, and uh, took a job with ICE as a supervisor there. Uh, and the uh, feedback I've gotten, he's still in the Most of these people stayed in the reserves if they got out, and we still hear from them often. And we've had at least two that I know of that opened, hung out their own shingle and opened their own practice, which is what I did when I retired. So... Uh, we have a variety of uh, successful attorneys who are Code 14 alum. And so, Mr. Latin, do you have any final words for people who might be looking to come to Code 14 or for anybody who might inevitably work with Code 14 in the future as it touches on so many different facets of Navy litigation? Well, I, you'll just discover that uh, the work that we do here does touch a, ver- a variety of, of the uh, efforts that are being accomplished in Big Navy and in other Navy legal offices. The, the people who have been here have loved their time here. Uh, you will discover when you leave that you will look back on the time in Code 14 as a time that was uh, where you learned a lot and and those things will stay with you, uh, whether you're in the Navy or outside of the Navy. Uh, you will be a far more successful attorney for the time that you spent here. Signing off for Code 14 and wishing you all an incredibly fantastic day, I'm Lieutenant Williams, Code 14 gunfighter, and thank you again, Mr. Latin, for sharing your time and expertise with us today. My pleasure. To any future gunfighters listening in, we can't wait to have you at OJAG Code 14. You have been listening to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Visit jag.navy.mil for additional chapters of this podcast series. Thank you for tuning in.